House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Today we have, uh, he's actually a journalist, a great writer, and he's uh, written a, a book called Nixon's Gamble. And he's also the, uh, I see, the editor on USA Today, the Washington Enterprise editor. So he's important. Uh, thank you for being here, <laughs> Mr. Ray. Thanks for having me. Wow. So um, I don't know where to begin. Um, <laughs> uh, how did you get into writing about Nixon and the book Nixon Scamble? Well, I grew up with Nixon as president. Uh, I was in junior high or almost in high school when he resigned in 1974. He's been somebody who's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember, and I always found his political career fascinating. Um, and then in the early 90s, I met a, someone who is now a good friend of mine, an author named Len Kolodny, when I worked in Tampa, Florida. His book, Silent Coup, with author Bob Getlin, um, really influenced me. Um, it kind of changed a lot of my thinking about, you know, the established versions of uh, the Nixon presidency and, you know, some of the reasons why Nixon resigned. And I reviewed uh, a lot of Len's documentation, listened to his interviews, and I thought it was compelling. And he had a lot of good ideas in there that I thought were worth uh, pursuing for another book. So now, how now the change in your feeling for Nixon, from how you felt when you were in, in in high school and when he was president, to now, uh, has it changed for the better? Do you feel better about him and do you like him more, or is this kind of maybe for the worse? Uh, I don't like him more, um, but for different reasons. Uh, I think he was a tremendously consequential president. He made a lot of things happen. I think he did it in a way that diminished the trust of the American people in the presidency. He did a lot of things for wrong reasons. He did a lot of good things in bad ways. Um, you know, I think he signed off on a genocide in Bangladesh, which was then called East Pakistan, because he needed Pakistan's help reaching out to the Chinese. Um, and he lied routinely. Um, so all of that, you know, goes to the negative side of the ledger on Nixon. But primarily what struck me was a lot of the revelations that were in Silent Coup that have been expanded upon, I think, in my book, you know, about the conduct of some, you know, great media icons such as Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein in the Washington Post. Um, I don't think that Woodward in particular was honest about his background and his associations, and I think the whole character of Deep Throat that we know from the book and movie All the President's Men is a composite character and not one person, and I think he's lied about that for more than 40 years. Right. Yeah, we've had a few other guests on to talk about that, and, and some people have even suggested that it sort of set Nixon up, that he didn't deserve um, you know, how it went down on him. Um, I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, I, I think, wouldn't uh, either, I think he caused his own problems. Um, 
that doesn't mean that in the course of all all of this that people didn't do him wrong in some ways. I mean, not everybody is, you know, all evil or all good. Um, and, you know, just because I come out of this with a, a rather negative view of Nixon as president doesn't mean that people did not do bad things to him. Right. Do you yeah. think that the light of today's presidency is affecting how we look at Nixon as well? I think that he and Trump are getting lumped together in a lot of different ways and not in a favorable way, really, to to either one of them. They're kind of being merged into one one character, yeah. um, which I think is misleading. Look, I think Nixon was very calculating about what he wanted to do. And he did it. And I don't think that can necessarily be said about our current president. Right, right. It, it's more of a uh, get in the car and drive wherever, free-for-all, um, compared to Nixon. So now, if I understand it in your book, you were saying Nixon's kind of, um, he was trying to form his own version of a CIA well, what he did was he restructured the National Security Council um, differently than his predecessors had done. And he wanted to funnel everything through the NSC and Henry Kissinger as National Security Advisor in a way to limit congressional scrutiny. And so that meant that he could do many of the things he wanted to do without, say, a cabinet official like the Secretary of State having to testify before Congress about what he or she was trying to do. And so that, in an effect, created a secret government in the White House. And I know that that term sounds kind of a little mysterious, kind of like, oh, the deep state that people talk about now. But that's not really what happened. It was just basically doing it in a way to keep from having to disclose what the White House was doing to Congress. Right. Um, right. And that's been, I think, a model over the last 50 years uh, since Nixon became president, that other administrations have used as well. Then, what's your when you say deep state too? What's your opinion of that, and and how people perceive it now, compared to what it would have been in Nixon's day? Well, you know what I think people refer to when they talk about that. In some cases, I think it's you know wacky conspiracy theory talk. In, in other ways, I think deep state can just simply mean people in certain institutions throughout the government who have a loyalty to those institutions that transcends, you know, a loyalty to any particular president. So if you are a military person, your loyalty is probably greater to the Army than it is to, say, Richard Nixon or Lyndon Johnson or whatever. And in the case of Nixon, his problems were, that he was keeping a lot of information from the military, you know, about decisions that affected people in the military. For example, he did a lot of his deliberations about the Vietnam War, and he didn't tell the people at the Pentagon what he wanted to do. And that had life-or-death consequences for thousands of people, in, you know, in the military, particularly those in Vietnam. Um, and they didn't like it. The people in the military did not like that. Now, you could say that they're part of a deep state that acted against Nixon. I don't believe it. But they were, you know, had a 
a serious vested interest in what happened, and they felt like they were being excluded from deliberations that had life or death consequences to them. Um, you know, now the term is being used for this cabal of people inside the government, which I think is mythical, um, who are somehow out to get this president either through, you know, the Mueller investigation or anything else. And I just don't think the facts demonstrate that. You know, uh, let, let me say this. Uh, that is the best explanation of the deep state that I've heard in a long time. Um, because, like you said, it, it all really comes down to perspective and loyalties. Um, I myself am a veteran, so my loyalties would be more to the military than it would be to a president who I think is not seeing things in my best interest. A am I making sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I don't think that that means that you advocate a coup against that president, but you have a difference of opinion because of your background. And I think many of the people, you know, certainly in the Nixon era and some of them now and, you know, under previous presidents all have that experience. Um, mm -hmm. And where I think it went wrong for Nixon was that he didn't really – deal with these people in an honest way. And so they felt like things were being done to them and to their comrades that was going to hurt them, and they didn't have a chance to weigh in on it honestly. And so, you know, they did things primarily like, you know, talk to members of the media about things that bothered them, and that in turn increased Nixon's paranoia. Now, where I'm going to disagree here slightly, though, Ray, is because, you know, today, you're exactly right, we use the word deep state, and we're seeing in our head, you know, this cabal, like you said, meeting in a dark, smoke-filled room, you know, making these decisions of world domination. But is are we really that far off if we combine the two explanations do you think that it's these people in congress that have been in there for 40 50 60 years and they see this young upstart coming in who is making all these decisions really you know without their consent you know how dare he and maybe they are tipping the tables against him i mean it, it happened in nixon's era um I don't think that there is an organized conspiracy for or against anyone in the government really at any time. Or, you know, more than two people have a hard time figuring out where to have lunch, you know, much less <laughs> organize a cabal to overthrow a president. You know, I think there are alliances of convenience. Um, things happen, you know, that that aren't necessarily by by design. They just happen, and, you know, things play off of it that way. Um, you know, one of the criticisms that I think was misguided about the book Silent Coup is that it purported to claim that there was this conspiracy driven by the military to get rid of Nixon. No, that wasn't true. It was that people who disliked what Nixon was, um, was doing then had an opportunity through various coincidences to do things to help themselves and to hurt him. Um, but I don't think it was an organized conspiracy in any way. 
Um, so much of it is one coincidence after another, not, you know, a group of people making things happen. Now, Ray, we had uh, Douglas Caddy. Now, he was the attorney, um, if you remember, for some of the... Uh, right. Um, now, in his book, and he sort of uh, made the assumption that there was a dark state that runs the deep state, which is what everybody talks about now. And I'm not sure how you feel about that. It just it seemed to be getting too complicated for me. Um, you know, I've read a lot of Doug's book, and I'm happy that he says nice things about my work in there. Um, and he's been a big supporter. I don't agree with all of it. But I will say this. There are a lot of people in Washington and in important places around the world who have worked with each other and known each other for a very long time. And their interests often align, and they have a lot more influence and power than I do. And they make things happen. Now, I don't think they make things happen in an organized kind of way where they're, you know, pulling everybody's strings and dictating what they want. But there are people and institutions that have a lot more clout than others, and they often seem to get what they want. Um, I don't think it's an organized conspiracy or a cabal, but it's just, you know, long-held personal associations that can influence, you know, policy and behavior. And, you know, I think you can look back and see examples of that throughout history, um, just people who are really plugged in. Um, and there are also, you know, people like that that I have found in my research, you know, on a variety of topics who have more influence than you think they would have based on their titles. Mm. So, so in that case, someone like uh, Kissinger had a huge amount of influence? Oh, he certainly did in government. Um Outside government, you know, after he left in the, over the last 40 years since he's been Secretary of State, I mean, he has influence as somebody who could get in and make a meeting happen for a client. I don't think that he's pulling the strings of, you know, policy in that time. Um, but, you know, when he worked for Nixon and uh, Ford, he definitely had a lot of influence. You know, I'm talking about Oh, you know, somebody like, say, Clark Clifford, the longtime, you know, D.C. lawyer and political operative and former Secretary of Defense. I mean, when he left office and was back at his law firm and working for that bank, BCCI, in the 80s and 90s, you know, he is somebody who could get a meeting with somebody and kind of engineer certain things. But I don't think he was, like, controlling the world or anything. Um, there are people like that, you know, who work in Washington. They're partners in law firms. They're, you know, on corporate boards. They're at think tanks or whatever who have a lot of influence in ways that people don't understand. Um, but I don't think they constitute a dark state. Well, since we're on the topic here um, and within all that era, oh, why did we, or the media, assign so much importance to the Trilateral Commission? Since we're talking about these little influential groups, what was that, and did it really have the influence that we think it did? Um, I don't think it did. Uh, I think it was a group of people, you know, like David Rockefeller and, 
you know, who were interested in world affairs and they would have meetings. I don't think they had meetings in a secret place, you know, and dictated world policy, but David Rockefeller is a perfect example of somebody who had a lot of influence. He had a lot of money. He worked, you know, ran a large um, multinational bank. Uh, he was a member of the Rockefeller family. He lived to be almost 100 years old, if not 100 years old, and knew a lot of people. Um, that doesn't mean he was shaping world affairs to, you know, generate outcomes that he wanted, um, you know. And I think, you know, you look at the Trilateral Commission as a body. I don't think you can say that it did anything. But you have a bunch of people who belong to a club, and they all know each other. And they all have influence, and they have money, and they have connections that most people don't have. That, by virtue of the fact that they're in that group, means they have more influence than other people. It doesn't mean that they secretly run the world, but they are people of influence. And there's always going to be a group like that in any society. Hmm. Now, you bring up a lot about... Uh and, and discuss the uh, the war that he was faced with, with Vietnam. Um, was there any surprises about what you learned um, that was behind the scenes on his side of it? Well, you know, a lot of people say, have said over the last 40-some years that Nixon needed to get the deal with China and arms control with the Russians to help him get out of Vietnam, and I think it's the exact opposite. I think he needed the Vietnam War to extract concessions from the Chinese and the Russians, and that he prolonged our effort in Vietnam long past the time when he knew it wasn't winnable, and that he authorized Kissinger to tell the Soviet ambassador in February of 1969 that the United States was not in the Vietnam to win Vietnam War to win on the battlefield. And that once we got our troops out, we were okay with whatever happened to South Vietnam. And that basically told the Soviet Union and the North Vietnamese that the United States was not going to try to win that war militarily. That it really was looking for a way out and had signed off on South Vietnam's fall to uh, the North Vietnamese. And that's something that Nixon never told the military. Uh, and, you know, I find that pretty stunning. Well, well n not necessarily. Um, and, uh, again, you know, just speaking as a veteran, it, maybe he was making a decision that would take a lengthy process to actually make, and he didn't tell him because he didn't want to get the opposition up front. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, except they figured out what he was doing, and that's one of the reasons why they were stealing secret documents from the White House and sending them back to the Pentagon. Um, and so they felt like they couldn't trust the president. And mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think when you're the president of the United States in a major ground war in Asia and trying to deal with the Soviet Union and China that you want the Pentagon not on your side. And That's they true. weren't really on his side. Um, and, you know, I think whatever your parents have told you when you were a kid, don't always tell the truth and don't lie, pretty much applies all the time.
Yeah, true. And, <laughs> true. True. Well, well, I can comment on that. I mean, you know, <laughs> current public figures don't don't stand by that. So it, it, I think it's right. a hard hard one to enforce with your kids. Um, but that's just my opinion. Um, uh, I'm, the, I'm the Clinton colostomy bag. Remember? <laughs> so. That's I get called that all the time. So I was going to say, but you, so you're kind of saying that Nixon, in a sense, kind of caused his own his own loss, destruction, or whatever by his paranoia and by not communicating and and that sort of attitude that he had. Oh, absolutely. So the first day he's in office. He restructures the government to make everything funnel through the White House to ensure a level of secrecy. As a result, people try to find out what he's doing, and when they find out what's little bits and pieces, they tell the press. Stories get out that Nixon doesn't like. He reacts by spying on 17 members of his government and journalists, and then wiretapped by the FBI. So he was hiding that secret almost from the beginning of his administration. Then he compounded it with the secret bombing campaign in Cambodia, which was, you know, widened the war somewhat into a neutral country. He didn't want to acknowledge that. That set up a chain reaction that led to the downfall of the Cambodian government um, and the tremendous genocide there. Um, he wanted to restructure, you know, the internal security apparatus of the United States through something called the Houston Plan. He was covering that up. He was covering up the existence of the military spying that was stealing documents from the White House. All of those have roots in his decision to restructure the government to maintain secrecy. So everything he did from the day he signed that document, National Security Decision Memorandum Number 2, spins off of that. And that's one that one action led to all of these things that he had to cover up. So by the time the Watergate break-in happened, involving, you know, the White House plumber team who, of secret investigators, you know, he was covering up what they were doing on the Pentagon Papers, the military spy ring, all these things that he had set in motion. So Watergate in and of itself was not a big deal, but if you lift it, ripped off that scab, you were going to find a bunch of other things that were greater secrets that he wanted to hide. And they all stem from the thing that he did on his first day in office. So let, let's go into that, um, because, you know, this is a whole other generation that's going to be listening to this show. Uh, tell us a little bit about what Watergate was. Okay. Watergate is an office and apartment complex here in Washington near the Potomac River, and in 1972, it had the offices of the Democratic National Committee. And five guys working for Nixon's re-election campaign were caught trying to break into the DNC headquarters in Watergate early in the morning of June 17, 1972. Um, Four of them were Cuban exiles who had CIA connections, and one was the security director for the Nixon re-election campaign, a guy named James McCord, a former FBI and CIA operative. They found 
through the Washington Post and other reporters traced back who these guys were, found the White House and Nixon campaign connections, and found that they were being paid for, by a Nixon um, campaign committee slush fund. So that put this break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in, you know, into the Nixon re-election campaign. No one could understand why Nixon would want to do that. And the fact is, Nixon did not want to do that. Um, he didn't know that it had happened, only found out after the fact. And it's my belief in Nixon's gamble that White House counsel John Dean, in collaboration with Jeb Magruder, another Nixon campaign official, sent the people into the DNC to find out what the Democrats knew about a prostitution ring that was used by Democrats and Republicans and that also involved John Dean's then-girlfriend and now his wife. I'm not saying that his girlfriend or wife was a call girl, but she her name was in the notebooks that were recovered when members of that call girl ring were busted. Mm-hmm. And Dean summoned the two U.S. attorneys to his office days before the Watergate break-in and copied what they had found, the notebooks that had his girlfriend's name in them. Um, and I believe that was the impetus to send these guys into the Watergate. And they were found hiding under the desk of the secretary at the DNC who had the notebooks in her desk drawer. Um, and that set off this whole chain reaction. And Dean was one of the main people covering up the White House connections to that break-in. And he got Nixon to buy into the cover-up um, because Nixon knew that the guys who were arrested had been doing all these other things for him and he didn't want people to know about them. And so and then it, it just set off. gets deeper and deeper, doesn't it? <laughs> right. Right. No one has, I mean, the conventional investigations of Watergate never really hit on a reason why the break-in happened. And I believe that the book Secret Agenda that came out in 1984 by a guy named Jim Hogan and Silent Coup, which came out in 1991 by Len Collado and Bob Gatlin, really did a great job of laying out this whole call girl reasoning. Um, and I mentioned in my book, I don't dwell on it because that's not really what Nixon's gamble was all about, but I think that there's tremendous validity to that. And I haven't seen a better reason for why it happened. Um, and, you know, the guys, when they broke in, a couple weeks earlier and they tapped this one phone and what they were hearing on that phone were conversations of a sexual nature. Um, and so I think that backs up the belief that they were trying to find out what kind of dirt the Democrats may have had on people in the White House and Republicans. Yeah, I mean, it- and, and, Nixon, and Nixon didn't know anything about that. Now, do, but do you believe that? Do you believe that he didn't know? Yeah, I do believe he did not know. 
about the Watergate break-in. I think he would have said, why are you doing that? He didn't know. What he did know was not long after it happened that he was all in on the cover-up. And, you know, there's that famous June 23, 1972, you know, tape with him and his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, in which he says, get the CIA to block the FBI investigation into the Watergate break-in. And he did that because John Dean told Bob Haldeman that that would be a good way to slow things down. So... You know, I think Nixon didn't, I don't believe Nixon knew about the break-in in advance, but once it happened, he was all in on the cover-up for a variety of reasons. You know, and I have to agree with you. You know, pardon my naivety here. Uh, I, I'm agreeing because I'm, I'm, I'm learning, uh, and everything that you're saying makes absolute sense so far. But would it be a wise decision, though, to set these departments against each other, you know, CIA versus FBI, you know, versus NSA, you know, versus, you know, OCC, you know, why, why, you're the doggone president. Why not just say, you know what, enough of this crap. I'm putting an end to it now and, and come clean with the American people rather than just, you know, oh crap, this happened. I didn't know about it. This is going to be embarrassing. Now I'm just going to help cover it up. It seems well, I mean, to kind of go against what you need to do. Of course. That's, you know, that's what Nixon was all about. That's how he did business. And he knew that there were things that he was hiding. And the biggest thing that he was hiding was the existence of the military spy ring at the White House. You know, those guys got busted in December of 1971. Nixon on tape says calls it a federal offense of the highest order, wants to prosecute, is talked out of it by his attorney general, John Mitchell, saying, if you do this, you'll blow up the Pentagon. And Nixon, you know, thought about it and goes, yeah, you're right, because it would have blown up the Pentagon. And so he sat on that, and that was investigated by the same team that was involved in the Watergate break-in knowing that if you pull the thread of the Watergate burglars, you're going to find this spy ring. And Nixon never really talked about that spy ring. And really, while it was revealed in early 1974, it kind of slid by. Um, and people since then, you know, come back and look at it and then let it, you know, kind of let it go again. Um, but I think that was a big deal. And he knew that if... The rest of the world, and primarily the Russians, knew that the military was basically an open revolt against the president to the degree that they were spying on him, that that would compromise his ability to do arms control and China outreach and anything else he wanted to do. So he, he covered it up. And he probably thought that, you know, if he let the FBI run wild, they were going to find out everything and blow up all sorts of stuff. And maybe he could have afforded to have, you know, some of that stuff discovered, but he probably thought that he couldn't deal with all of it, so he just went all in to try to hide everything, which was a yeah. huge mistake. Yeah, it, you know, it makes sense, but uh, I agree with you. It's a huge mistake. You would have come off looking like a hero if you had to just come out to the American people, hey, all of this stuff happened. 
I'm not denying it happened. It was without my knowledge. But here's a thought, and the more I listen to you, the more I'm analyzing this as we talk, maybe he just decided to cover it up because if this all happened without his knowledge, given today's society and today's media, they would have said, are you kidding me? You're an incompetent fool then. You know, if all this happened without your knowledge, you know, you're stupid. You know, I think... That would be a valid criticism, you know. Now, look, I know that the President of the United States has a lot of power, but he's not omnipotent. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on in any White House that the President doesn't know about. Because the President can't know about everything. You know, I mean, I'd say most of us don't know everything that goes on in our own homes. Um, much less, you know, the leader of the free world. Um, but, you know, he would be open to that criticism because he wouldn't have known what had happened. And that would have been, you know, damaging to him. Um, but he could have gone in and said, look, John Dean, you're fired. I know you were involved. You're going to leave now. You know, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. And we're going to have the FBI prosecute these burglars and we're going to put them in prison. And, you know, the people involved in my campaign who had anything to do with this, I'm firing them, too. He won a one re-election because he was running against a weak candidate, George McGovern. He had a record of accomplishment in 1972 that was, you know, pretty astounding. So I think he could have overcome that, but it wasn't in his nature to do that, so he didn't do it. Mm. Now, um, we had Roger Stone on uh just a while ago, and uh, we were mm-hmm. talking a little bit about this. And he he has the idea that the it's the it's because of the mainstream media and their interpretation of the facts and how they present it that uh, it's that made Watergate uh, what it was because he's saying it was really distorted. Um, it's not the real historic truth. Um. um. It, you know, I, I sort of get the interpret. He doesn't get specific. I, I sort of get the feeling he thinks that um, they blew it up into something that wasn't really important, and perhaps he was set up for what he for what they did do. You know, um, I don't know. It's hard I, to I, explain. Yeah, I've read Roger's book Nixon's Secrets. I think he does. You know. A good job in that. I don't agree with all of it, but I thought, you know, given Roger's flamboyant uh, reputation and his uh, affinity toward Nixon, I thought that he did a good job. Um, I think the Watergate break-in in and of itself was not a big deal. I don't think that Nixon knew about it. So to make the break-in a huge deal, I think, is misleading. And all the stuff that people call Watergate really is this all-encompassing, you know, what John Mitchell, the Attorney General, called the White House horrors. All the things, the Pentagon Papers, the trying to sabotage the 1968 Paris peace talks, the Houston plan for domestic security, the secret bombing of Cambodia, all of those things kind of get lumped into Watergate in popular imagination. And the Watergate burglary, 
taken on its own was not a big deal. But it's all the other stuff that spun off from that that became a much bigger deal. And so if I'm going to parse what Roger said that way, I'll agree that the breaking in and of its in and of itself was relatively insignificant. The other stuff far more significant and that when you inevitably investigate the break in, you're going to get to all those things. So in uh Nixon's gamble, what is it that you hope people get out of out of it when they read it? That Nixon's downfall was not because of the Watergate break in but it was rooted in a policy decision he made on his, the very beginning of his administration and that it's all those things that kind of snowballed into his demise and it stems from his, you know, essential secrecy and paranoia um, and that there were a variety of people who are working for and against him. Um, you know, and one thing that as I was working on it that really struck me is kind of an unsung player in this, and I'll let you decide whether he's a hero or not, was a Missouri senator named Stuart Symington, a Democrat, former Air Force secretary, um, 24 years in the Senate, and was the acting chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee in 1973. And it's a lot of the hearings that Symington did that revealed a lot of details about what Nixon had been doing. And the only reason that Simonton was the acting chairman of the committee was that John Stennis of Mississippi, the actual chairman, was in the hospital because he had been shot in a mugging attempt in January of 1973 and couldn't chair the committee. And Stennis was loyal to Nixon. Stennis, in fact, knew about the secret bombing of Cambodia and kept it quiet. So if Stennis had been running that committee a lot of these revelations that Symington had forced out might not have happened or might have happened in a different way. Um, so history has a lot of coincidences and things that kind of take you down a different path that you don't expect. And that was one of the things that I found in, in the research of this book that I enjoyed working on and I think shows things in the kind of a different perspective. Uh, Another one. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Another one is the role of a former FBI official named William Sullivan. And Sullivan was the guy who ran the FBI wiretaps on government officials and journalists for Nixon. Sullivan was also close to Al Haig, Nixon's deputy national security advisor, and then later his chief of staff. And that guy had his hands on all sorts of secrets. And he was a major leaker to the media. Um, and I think that he is one of the people who makes up the composite source that Woodward calls Deep Throat. That looking through Sullivan's records with the FBI and Woodward's interviews that he purports to be with Deep Throat or Mark Felt, who is one of Sullivan's great rivals, I think that evidence shows that Sullivan was the guy telling Woodward a lot of stuff about Nixon, and it's interesting when you look listen to the White House tapes from that era, Nixon and Haig thought Sullivan was going to help them at the time when Sullivan was giving them the shaft. 
Yeah. I, I was going to say Symington, he ran against Nick um, Kennedy in 1960, didn't he? Right, yeah, he did. Yeah. He was, and, you know, people thought that he had, you know, a good chance. He was a contender to be the vice presidential pick um, when, you know, Kennedy went with Johnson instead. Uh, you know, he was in, he's also somebody who was behind the much inflated hype about the missile gap in 1960. And he, you know, was doing it because he was from a big aerospace state. Um, interesting guy. Um, he did a lot of stuff that was kind of uncovering secret military activity from the start of the Nixon administration. And, you know, I think his role in this really has been largely ignored, and I was happy to kind of illuminate it a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It could have turned out so much different uh, for him. Yeah. <laughs> really, like little little things, you know. Um, so uh, what have you got next? You're still uh, working for a, um, USA Today, right? You're still doing the... Yeah, I'm still an editor at USA Today. I work with a great bunch of uh, reporters and editors here in our Washington Bureau. Um, and my reporters cover things like the Supreme Court, the Pentagon, money and politics, the VA, um, environmental issues, you know, doing a lot of good work. Uh, stuff I, you know, that I've been really proud of. I think we've, you know, covered a lot of problems, you know, for veterans and their health care. And, you know, that's been interesting. You know, things about sexual assault and harassment in the military. You know, over the years done things about vehicles that protect, you know, troops against roadside bombs. You know, we helped create a, what turned into a $50 billion program to buy these MRAP vehicles that's all rooted in our work. Mm. Uh, so that's fun. I have a book uh, coming out next spring called Haig's Coup, which examines Al Haig's role as Nixon's chief of staff. Um, you know, I touch on some of it in Nixon's Gamble. I expand on it in this book. I think, you know, people will find that interesting. And I'm also uh, working on another book about the Japanese-American incarceration during World War II. Yeah, I saw that in, the, in, your, in your bio. I, that, that really looks interesting. Um, what do you, you know, I'm not getting too much into new politics. What do you think of today's, um, like, what's going on with the presidency right now? Do you have, do you have like, a, a kind of an, an overview of where it's going. Uh, is this really like Nixon or stupid Watergate, I hear, things like that? Um, you know, You know, I think there are elements of uh, Nixon in this current White House, uh, you know, and then there are many things like we've really never seen before. Um, you know, I'm astounded by the amount of revelations about what uh, President Trump is doing. Um, they come with such speed, you know, that what would be a huge deal in any previous administration, Republic or, Republican or Democrat, is a big deal under Trump for like 10 minutes, and then something else comes along. And um, it's a challenge to cover. I think... Um, I think that all of it needs to be covered, and 
I know that there are a lot of people who support this president and they do it with sincere reasons and a lot of them, you know, question how we in the quote mainstream media and I guess USA Today is part of that, you know, how we cover him. I can tell you from my perspective, the people I work with here, they're honest, ethical and above board and they come from all variety of political persuasions and we're just trying to do a good job. And there are a lot of things that I hear come out of this White House, out of the mouth of the president, that can be directly contradicted by things that he has said or tweeted days, sometimes hours earlier. Um, yeah. And it makes it hard to cover. And, you know, uh, I think it makes some of us feel a little defensive that, you know, we're being portrayed as, you know, out to get him when we're not. You know, we get, we're trying to, you know, do a job that tells people what's happening in, in Washington and how decisions are made that affect their lives and how their taxpayer money is spent. Um, and it's challenging because it is definitely chaotic over there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in total support. I just, I, I think that um, the media is taking a, an, a, a beating um, for really no reason um you know there is there is a lot of bad stuff bad press but uh i i i believe in what uh i i you know i think a lot of it is probably because most people turn on cnn or fox on their tv and that's their or facebook and that's that's all of their information um usa today new york times and post and all that i think they're all taking a hit people aren't really focusing on the papers as much we got all lumped into the same thing um you know it's hard for me to watch cable news of any any stripe because basically it's a bunch of people on tv talking and i know half of them you know and i don't need to watch them i could i can you know hear them for free by going outside or whatever um and uh I don't know if, you know, that really helps, you know, our political discussions in this country, but we've always had heated rhetoric and people doing crazy stuff. And you look back in history, you know, if you discover somebody you hadn't heard about or, you know, you're not familiar with McCarthyism or anything like that, you go, wow, that was crazy. It's always been that way. It's more magnified now because there are so many different media sources that you can tap into, and it can be rather overwhelming. Um, And I find that if you kind of have a steady media diet of places that you trust, it helps keep your perspective a little better. You you actually covered George Wallace, didn't you, the last part of his his, his I covered George Wallace's last term as governor of Alabama. Um, We worked on a big... uh, you know, special section of his life and times when I was there, and it was fascinating. And I learned a lot about him in the times, and, you know, I won't say that I came away thinking everything that he did was right, but I understood it a little bit better, um, and I still think a lot of it was wrong, and certainly history has shown that it was wrong, but it was an interesting experience for me as a journalist 
Um, it was a way to live history in a way that I didn't think that I would ever get to. Um, and I still have a lot of great friends from my time when I was doing that. Yeah. I just, you know, of late, um, there seems to be a lot of push on making George Wallace sound like he was a great man or a good man, um, that he did good. Like uh, even Roger Stone mentioned that when we talked to him. Uh, is there some reason, is there something I'm missing? Why Why is there a sudden change in, in, in Wallace and how he's supposed to be represented? Or portrayed, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that when I think the post-1972 assassination attempt George Wallace is different than the guy before he got shot. I think times changed. He mellowed. He was kind of a pathetic figure near the end. Um, it's a lot easier to look at an old man who's deaf, who's in a wheelchair, who was, at the time I covered him, surrounded by a lot of black aides who were, you know, nobody's fool, you know, and think more highly of him than the schoolhouse door 1963 George Wallace, who was an ardent segregationist. And I think, you know, people's perceptions change over time. Look, there are some people now who say, hey, maybe slavery wasn't so bad. No, it was bad. And George Wallace, his first uh, few times in office, was not a great guy. He was a divisive figure who tapped into resentments in American politics, you know, much like President Trump has done in some ways. And uh, um, it was only later in life, as times changed and he changed with them, that, you know, he had a different image. And, you know, that's the George Wallace that I covered. And, but I never forgot what he had done before. And nor did many of the people who worked with him, you know, and knew him. They knew what he was all about. Um, and I don't think people should forget that. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess our, our time is running out, but you're just a fascinating man to talk yeah. to. And I really, really enjoy the book. Um, of course, I'm listening to it. I'm not reading because my eyes. <laughs> you know, Nixon. Hey, that guy did a great job. That guy did yeah, a great job yeah. on the audio book. Yeah, yeah, great yeah. It, it is, and that's important because I've, I've done some books myself, and I know the audio versions. I'm not really fussy on a couple of them, and so it's really important to have a good, good sounding. And he's he's good sounding. So um, absolutely, we're going to have your book up on our website and all the information. Um, Ray Locker, it's been a pleasure. Hey, thanks for having me, Al. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.